welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by looking up Medium Cool Pod. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram and we'll pop up. And at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter uh, at Austin Glidden. You can also find me on Letterboxd. Um, and hey, if you get a chance and you feel so inclined, please leave us a rating and a review. At least, at the very least, subscribe or follow our podcast wherever you are listening to this now. It really helps us out, and we really appreciate all that you do for us. Uh, today, I am going to go solo again by choice. I just wanted to cover some 2021 movies. I don't feel like I've done enough 2021 movies this year uh, on the podcast. So I'm going to be doing several solo episodes, not back-to-back. I'll probably have some guests on here and there, but uh, I'm kind of feeling out how many movies I get through. And uh, last weekend, I started my cram, and I got through four in the weekend. Also, having my daughter and friends over and everything, I was still able to get four in. And uh, yeah, uh, so uh, today is going to be basically uh, here are four movies from 2021 that I've seen and uh, we'll see how you guys feel about that. I'm going to be looking at uh, two uh, more kid or teen directed movies uh, from Disney. I'm going to look at Cruella and Raya the Last and the Last Dragon, uh, two of the kind of more kiddy kid friendly movies that I uh, skipped earlier on. Uh, but then I'm also going to be looking at Todd Haynes' uh, documentary, The Velvet Underground, looking at the uh, band The Velvet Underground, and that would be really fun to talk about. And then I'm going to end with uh, the uh, directorial debut of director Michael Sonofsky. It is the Nick Cage movie Pig that came out uh, in July. So uh, all that and more, I'll be doing that today. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and jump into it now. This is going to be a relatively short episode. By that I mean it'll be over an hour Um, but we'll have uh, some fun here. So please uh, listen to these reviews. uh, Hit me up on social media. Let me know what you think, and let me know if there are any 2021 movies that you want to hear me cover, and there's a good chance I'll be able to fit those in. Uh, No promises, but I will do my best, and I will make them a priority if you ask nicely. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and get off here for a moment, and when I come back, I'm going to talk about Cruella. All right, I'm going to talk a little bit first about Cruella uh, from this year. It was directed by Craig Gillespie. It was written by Dana Fox, uh, Tony McNamara, and a story was by uh, Aline Broche McKenna. The cast is Emma Stone, Emma Thompson, Joel Fry, Paul Walter Hauser, and Mark Strong. It was released a few months ago, May 28th of this year, 2021. The budget was between 100 and 200 million, which is a lot of millions to not know about. I am unsure exactly what it is, but the number I found was 100 to 200 million. That's crazy. But the box office was $233.3 million, which is pretty great for pandemic numbers. I'm just going to say. Uh, but, you know, in, ni- in in 1970s London, amidst the punk rock revolution, a young grifter named es- uh, Estella 
is determined to make a name for herself with her designs. She befriends a pair of young thieves who appreciate her appetite for mischief, and together they are able to build a life for themselves on the London streets. One day, Estella's flair for fashion catches the eye of the Baroness von Hellman. And uh, a fashion, she's a fashion legend who is devastatingly chic and terrifyingly hot. Uh, but their relationship sets in motion a course of events and, and revelations that will cause Estella to embrace her wicked side and become the raucous, uh, fashionable, and revenge-bent Cruella. Now, when I was a young lad, uh, like many adolescents, I saw 101 Dalmatians, the original cartoon, and I loved it. Uh, my grandma used to have the VHS tape, and you know we would watch it a lot. And my mom would also uh, often sing the Cruella Deville song, Cruella Deville, you know that whole thing. And she would sing it to me and like playfully kind of stalk me, you know, uh, like she was gonna get me or something. I'd run away, you know, acting scared but having a great time. And you know, having said all this, you know, I wanted to be clear. Uh, before you jump to conclusions, I don't really have any emotional ties to the original movie as much as my nostalgia is tied to the memories I have with my family, and that movie just so happens to be one of them. Uh, and the two people I mentioned, unfortunately, have passed in the last three years. So, you know, this is a pretty close memory, and there is nostalgia tied into it. Uh, but I have I have fond memories of 101 Dalmatians. You know, I'll forget about the live action films from '96 and 2000 if you like them to each their own. And uh, my daughter Evie loves Cruella, and so you know I wanted to watch it with her in some strange comparative way to how I watched it with my grandma. And I actually had high hopes for this one, even though my expectations were relatively low. And you know, taking away the familial component to the movie. I thought Cruella was actually quite of a quite a bore, to be honest. I don't think it's great, uh, but it was you know a lovely experience thanks to my wife and daughter. But Cruella is a weird thing. Uh, uh, Maleficent, the movie, came out in 2014, and that Halloween droves of young ladies were you know trick or treating in Maleficent costumes. Jumped to 2021, and even my daughter was jumping into a Cruella costume, you know, for the spooky holiday. And you know, it, it's interesting that. You know, like all big studio Hollywood studios, whatever you want to say, uh, Disney seems to be turning in, turning back, you know, to that nostalgia. And in, in this case, they're turning to their villains to make money on that nostalgia because nostalgia sells. Now, I love Cowboy Bebop, the anime. If you don't know what it is, you're missing out. It's a... It's a um, Oh, God, uh, an anime TV series. It came out, uh, it was right around the turn of the millennium, right in the early 2000s. I forget the exact dates off the top of my head. Uh, but, you know, Netflix is making a live action movie, and it's probably going to be terrible. Now, I hope not, of course, but that's where my expectations are. I think the trailer kind of looks awful. And because of nostalgia, I'll watch the damn thing in a heartbeat. And you know what? I'll have a great time doing it, even if I think it's a piece of shit. But Cruella is so weird because, you know, I don't care that Cruella becomes a puppy killer long after the credits roll on this movie. Uh, it has nothing to do with this movie. It's just if you watch the original, you know, she ends up being kind of an older version of uh, Cruella and she kills puppies. Uh, and so, uh, or she wants to at least. But, you know, I don't care that there's going to be a Cruella 2 which will likely somehow engender more empathy and provide more of the cool factor, quote-unquote, to this villain. Um, 
I don't I don't care about any of these things. And and uh, Letterbox user Brat all capital B R A T uh, commented about the film saying, "You think Disney's actually going to show Cruella killing puppies? Really? Think about this for more than five seconds. Then criticize this three hundred twenty-four billion dollar corporation for anything else." We're drowning in a sea of reheated lukewarm content, and you're mad at the one that lets Emma Stone do deranged glam punk camp? Grow up and have some fun. Okay, now uh, I use this quote to not to pick on Brat. You know, <laughs> I follow them and they're great, uh, but uh, there is a lot to pick apart here. And and th- why am I going to? Because I'm seeing a lot of these things that Brat's touching on in other areas and in other comments elsewhere. Uh, so I'm going to kind of use this as a framework here. And and first, you know, uh, do you think Disney is going to show Cruella killing puppies? Second, I'll touch on, you know, we're drowning in a sea of reheated lukewarm content. And then uh, I'll put a pin in that, though. And finally, you're, you know, you're mad about the one that let Emma Stone do deranged glam punk camp, grow up and have some fun. I'm going to touch on all of these individually, so let's go. The puppy killer thing is so stupid. Uh, Can we all just admit this? Listen, I love dogs, and I'm not condoning the murder of Dalmatians or any other dog for that matter, but Jesus Christ, this is a prequel. She hasn't killed dogs yet, okay? She has, like, I don't know why we're mad about this. And though it is a complete shoestring bullshit reason... The film does explain why she hates Dalmatians, so at least it gets that across. Who in the fuck really thinks that they were going to show this? Did people actually think they were going to show Cruella killing puppies? I don't understand what this whole thing is. This never even crossed my mind watching the film. Cruella Cruella is being treated as a hero more, um, you know, like a, a bad person who is fucking with worse bad people. It's like the Dexter of Disney. You know, <laughs> Dexter is a serial killer killing serial killers. Um, and, you know, like she's like a bad person, but like being mean to a worse person. Uh, but furthermore, of course, they're not going to murder dogs in a Disney movie. PG-13 or not. It's not going to happen. That's fucking stupid. It's just not how Disney rolls. So I don't even understand this. It's not worth uh, yours or my time. Uh, to discuss this further. So next, you know, we're drowning in a sea of reheated lukewarm content. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly, though I disagree that Cruella is any kind of exception, but I agree with that statement. I think largely now with a lot of big budget movies, there are, of course, exceptions. Uh, Cruella not being one of them in my opinion, but there are exceptions, um, but they are reheated lukewarm content. I love that phrasing. Very simple. Uh, but I want to be clear, you know, Cruella is a fun movie on its surface. The film only falls apart when you think even remotely beneath the surface or about what is happening in depth. So if you let the film just happen and you mindlessly let your eyeballs dance across the screen and, you know, you see a colorful faux punk aesthetic and, you know, your ears are blessed with the wonderful soundtrack, you know, that's great. And and, and all of this, you know, all of the nuance, context and subtext, etc., Uh, As I answered uh, when my wife asked what I thought of the movie, it's stupid, okay? (laughs) The nuanced context and subtext is stupid in this movie. My wife was like, what'd you think? What are you rating it? I'm like, I don't know yet. And she's like, well, what'd you think? And I'm like, it's stupid. (laughs) And uh, and she was like, that's harsh. And I was just like, I don't think so. (laughs) 
Because <laughs> uh, I didn't. And, and it, again, it's not that I think it's just like this terrible movie. It's just that uh, ultimately it's just a really stupid thing. And it didn't have to be. And so, you know, Cruella is fun to look at. I'll give it that. There is, uh, there's some cool fashion. The sets and overall design, you know, contributes to the cool factor, as I mentioned. Uh, you know, it's, it's a fun visual experience. Not great, but fun. And, uh, you know, the soundtrack steals the show, though. Uh, it's a wonderful and eclectic mix of mostly older tunes. Not all, but mostly. Um, and again, it's fun. Uh, even the songs from the period give off a Sofia Coppola, Maria Antoinette vibe. Uh, you know, it all feels too modern and scatterbrained for, you know, for it to be from the 60s and 70s. But, you know, it is in, in large part. And, you know, at least it sounds good. Uh, there's really nothing authentic about the time period, though. Uh, it, you know, it, uh, but it, it also doesn't seem to be the focus, nor does it generally matter that it's not. Uh, the filmmakers had a style that they wanted to go for, and that's fine and dandy. Uh, it just didn't really work for me, though. I, I'm not a huge fan of that. It didn't seem to have, um, uh, like, it wasn't a realistic depiction of the time, which I didn't need it to be, but I also don't feel like there was much of an establishment of, like, what this world that they're in is. So it was just ultimately just like a weird experience for me. So Brett's comment about how people are mad at the one Disney film that lets Emma Stone do deranged glam punk camp, uh, grow up and have some fun. My response to that is twofold. <laughs> uh, first, Emma Stone is great. And two, or second, however you want to say it, uh, B, um, grow up and have some fun. Uh, <laughs> I hate statements like that. So I'm going to touch on each of these separately here. Emma Stone does a really good job in Cruella, okay? I'm going to give Emma Stone that. Uh, the problem is the difference between Cruella and the person behind the personality, Estella. See, Cruella is uh, more of a stage name, and her name is actually, in reality, Estella. But Cruella got her last name, uh, DeVille, uh, you know, when some of the other characters discuss a Panther DeVille car, the same model that Cruella drives in the original cartoon. And, uh, of course, it looks like Devil, Cruella Devil, DeVille. We fucking get it. All right, anyways, Emma Stone uh, is not the problem here, though. She kills it. It's the writing of the character and just the overall depiction to me. Stylish, yes. Cool hair, I think the black and white thing is dumb, but she actually pulls it off. Uh, I mean, you know, there are parts of this that I think are cool on the Emma Stone part, but they don't ultimately weigh, they don't add up to much, I guess. Um, but yeah, she's not the problem here. She kills it. It's the writing. And Estella is almost possessed by Cruella, even from a young age. Like, Estella, I know she's not literally possessed, but I'm just speaking about it kind of like that. You know, Estella seems like a halfway believable character, at least within the world, at least within what world building we get here. Um, but Cruella is straight up a cartoon, and there is a tonal shift in those moments, and, and we see an actor trying to literally act like a cartoon, and it's just bad, in my opinion. Uh, and again, you know, Emma Stone does it well, it's just bad writing and a bad version of the character within this movie that we've been watching with this Estella character. And then we get this fucking cartoon that just pops in. It feels weird to me. It feels off. It does not work. So, you know, uh, it doesn't fit in the world that had already been established to what extent it is. And, you know, unless you're residing in the same type of world as I don't fucking know, 
Harry and the fucking Hendersons where everything is relatively normal, but you have a fucking Bigfoot in the movie. This is a terrible example. I'm making a terrible point. But the, the thing is, it's like Cruella stands out like that to me. It's fucking weird. So <laughs> it just doesn't work for me. Uh, it makes the film feel really phony, which is not fun. It's not fun to me when it feels phony. Sometimes it doesn't, but sometimes it does. And in those moments, it loses me. And, you know, if you're into that, uh, if you're susceptible to the, quote, cool factor that some people will see in Cruella, more power to you. It does not, you know, it it does not work for me. And, uh, you know, it makes the film feel phony, which is not fun. Uh, they, they try too hard to, you know, tie in to the original cartoon. And, you know, these little moments make the entire film feel like a nostalgic money grab to me. And that really diminishes the film overall. Uh, but, you know, there is, there is an important thing to consider with Cruella. The film is PG-13, and it is clearly aimed at late adolescent and early teen folks, okay? Not to say that you can't enjoy it outside of those ages of life, but it is clearly geared toward them. So my 10-year-old daughter, Evie, loved it, and I love her love for it, okay? I really do. I love that she loves a movie that much. I was that kid, too. And... Uh, you know, she thinks, quote, it's the best thing ever, end quote. Uh, that's that's her feeling, you know. And and I remember feeling that way about nerdy shit, like the never-ending story or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But I'm looking at it as someone outside of those years. Unfortunately, people make statements like, grow up and have some fun. But what that does is it reduces the film down to who cares if it's not a great movie, just enjoy it. And unfortunately, that's not how it works, and I demand more. There are some really, really good movies tailored toward kids and teenagers. Really good. I mean, bona fide classics. I think Paddington, the Paddington Bear movies or whatever, I think Paddington is genuinely awesome. I think Wall-E and uh, Up are great. Toy Story, great Pixar movies. The Goonies and Stand By Me. Yes, they, you know, uh, Stand By Me, for example, Rated R, okay, but the thing is, that is really still truthful to teenagers more so than half of the other teenage shit that we get. John Hughes teen dramedies like Ferris Bueller's Day Off or The, the Breakfast Club, any of those, they all take their kids seriously. They all establish the world. They all have a consistent tone to some extent. And, you know, I could go on and on, but the problem is new movies for kids and teens are usually shit, and they pander to them to an insulting degree rather than taking them seriously and really trying to hit home. So, you know, I, I want to move on to talk about Ryan the Last Dragon. We'll see if I have any of these issues with that or if it remedied some of them, did it perpetuate them, who knows. Uh, I'll talk about that in a minute, but... You know, I can't wait for the Ursula, Gaston, and Jafar origin movies. Like, <laughs> uh, that's sarcasm. Of course, they don't exist, do they? I hope they don't actually happen. But the point is, um, I'm just waiting for them to do this with all the big, uh, the heavy hitter enemies here, villains. I don't know. This movie doesn't even, Cruella doesn't even make sense to exist. I don't understand. Anyways, I gave Cruella a 2 out of 5. Again, you know, it's not that I hated it. It's just a blah experience with no weight, and it's all spectacle in my view. If you agree or disagree, please hit me up on social media. That is Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You'll find me at MediumCoolPod. You can also email me at MediumCoolPod at gmail.com. You can also 
Find me, Austin Glidden, on Instagram and Twitter. Find me there. Also, uh, on uh, Letterboxd, let me have it. If you agree or disagree, let me know. I'm going to come right back here in just a minute and talk about another kid's movie, Raya and the Last Dragon. All right, to round out our uh, kind of kids slash teen movie thing, uh, we just talked about Cruella. I'm going to talk a little bit about Raya and the Last Raya. Sorry, Raya and the Last Dragon. Uh, it came out earlier this year, March 5th, uh, 2021. Directed by, check this out, Don Hall, Carlos Lopez Estrada, Paul Briggs, and John Rippa. Okay, four directors with credit. It was written by, let's see if I can get through all these, Kui Gwen and Adele Lim. Lim? Shit. I don't know how to say this name, but Adele Lim? I'll say that, maybe? I don't know if the I is an it or an E, but whatever. Uh, Adele Lim, uh, with the story by those two, as well as, as well as Paul Briggs, Don Hall, uh, Carlos Lopez Estrada, uh, Keel? Uh, Jesus Christ, I'm so bad. You know, let me just, a quick aside here. I'm supposed to be a teacher. How do I always get my students' names right? Like, I'll see these wild names, and I'll say them, and they'll be like, yep, you got it. Like, 90-plus percent of the time I'm getting, probably 95%. It's very rare that I get a name wrong. For some reason, when I'm doing this fucking podcast, I can't say a goddamn writer's name. Anyways, I'm digressing here. Uh, Kiel Murray, I'll just say that. John Rippa and Dean Wellens. There are a lot of cooks in the kitchen here, folks. Goodness gracious. Uh, but the cast, uh, Kelly Marie Tran, Aquafina, and Gemma Chan, as well as, of course, there's a whole list, but these are kind of the three bangers here. Uh, again, it was released March 5th, 2021, with a budget of $100 million, box office $130.3 million. Again, good pandemic money. All right. Uh, again, a lot of people weren't going to theaters, um, including myself. And uh, yeah, there's a lot going on. So that's that's pretty good money. Uh, long ago in a fantasy world of Kumandra, humans and dragons lived together in harmony. But when an evil force threatened the land, the dragons sacrificed themselves to save humanity. Now, 500 years later, the same evil has returned, and it's up to a lone warrior, Raya, to track down the legendary last dragon to restore the fractured land and its divided people. Uh, I watched this with my daughter, too. She had already seen the movie and was trying really, really hard not to ruin it for me with spoilers. <laughs> uh but I, I'm, I'm going to touch on a few things about the film and kind of bring it all back around full circle here. I want to start with a major compliment. The CG in this movie is incredible. All the animation. It's incredible. Now, I don't praise CG much. But in all CG animated movies, it's kind of a thing. Like, you know, <laughs> like the CG, the animation, the special effects, whatever you want to call it. You know, that is a thing that has to be considered when you're looking at these all CG animated movies. So, you know, uh, the movie Ryan the Last Dragon looks amazing. And th there was a point when The Last Dragon, 
holds Raya upside down by her leg, and it looked like an animated dragon holding a live-action girl. Like, it was that real. Uh, It was wild. So, you know, little things you look for, like water, fur, etc., that... You know, that stuff really shows off the definition. Uh, That's all here in spades. So if you like spectacle in your animated features, look no further. If you're not familiar with the term the uncanny valley, it's a term used to describe the relationship between, you know, the human-like appearance of a usually robotic object uh, and the emotional response that it invokes in us humans. Um, in this case, it's when we talk about the Uncanny Valley in film, it's more of the relationship between seeing something CG or seeing an effect that looks real, but it's just not quite real enough. Like, we can't quite get past that valley to make something look completely authentic and real, right? Uh, there's always, you know, usually time will show us, you know, we'll look back at something 10 years, pr- 10 years prior and go, oh, man, I thought that looked so real when I first saw it, but now I can tell it's fake. You know, we, we, we will likely never defeat the uh, or close the gap, I guess, of the Uncanny Valley. Uh, I don't believe we ever will, but this, <laughs> damn, this looks great, okay? Uh, I actually really, really thought this movie looked good. I don't feel like I, I, uh, I talk up enough movies visually that are like CG heavy or animated uh, but, you know, unless it's like a really unique animation, but this is a classic kind of a Pixar style CG animation and it looks great. The plot is like that of a D&D campaign, <laughs> which, you know, being me, I'll probably steal it because it's just great. Uh, there are five communities or tribes of people that were once one. Uh, Kumandra is the one place and uh, the prosperous land of Kamandra was ravaged by the Droon, evil spirits that turn people and dragons to stone. So Sisu, played by Aquafina, uh, is the last dragon and concentrates her magic into a gem that banishes the Droon, reviving Kamandra's people from stone, you know, but not the dragons. Now, a powerful struggle for the gem divides Kamandra's people into the five tribes called Fang, Heart, Spine, Talon, and Tail, which uh, are pretty much named for their placement along the dragon-shaped river that they all are on. Uh, But ever since the dragons were turned to stone, these five communities have turned away from one another. And, you know, they've just lost trust, everyone. They've lost trust, you know. (laughs) Uh, It's a word we're going to come back to definitely, so let's put a pin in that. Uh, During a peaceful meeting in Heart, the tribe of Heart, the communities tried to steal the powerful crystallized dragon heart, uh, which, you know, holds the power of the dragons, as I mentioned, and it's the only thing keeping the Droon out of our realm, or their realm, I guess. And eventually, the tribes fight over it, this crystallized heart or whatever, And, you know, it is eventually broken, and each community steals a piece of it. But in order for Raya to fight off the ancient evil, she must get all the pieces back to put the crystal uh, back together. So, you know, this is like an old Final Fantasy game or something. I mean, I absolutely love the basic premise and concept of the story. Um, And I wanted to be clear, I do love the concept. Now, the execution feels... It's fine. It feels emotionally rehashed to me. Uh, you know, though this is a new film, 
this never had a chance of being like a Moana or a Frozen. And and despite any criticisms I have of those movies, because I do, but I see why they're popular, you know? And Raya, just no surprise to me, it just never seemed to be in the same league. And, it, you know, it's, it's the same way I feel about Frozen 2. A lot of people like it more. I get it. I get why people like Frozen 2 more than 1. But the plot of Frozen 2 is a billion times cooler. Like, the concept and creations are cool. But I thought that the film was kind of a bore and messy. The first Frozen isn't great, in my opinion. But it, it does feel like it can be a classic. And it had a far better execution and was more consistent though it didn't have as many generally cool concepts to play with. And in that way, Raya is Frozen 2. <laughs> like, basically, you know, it, it has some highlights, don't get me wrong, uh, and the concepts cool. I already just gushed about how cool I think they're, basically their D&D plot is. But it just doesn't really develop anything. It constantly tells you how to feel, which, you know... A lot of movies directed at kids, I understand, you know, they often do that and they off, they offer a certain level of, they demand rather, a certain level of tolerance for such things. You know, you have to take that because it is trying to hit a wide audience and and it makes sense and, you know, I, I try to give a lot of tolerance to those things. I try to give a pass and I try to accept it because of how, of what its purpose is. But all of that purpose and all of that aside, I feel like Raya is missing that connection. The connection that people had with Moana. The connection that people had with um, uh, Frozen or or even something like Wally or Up or, or Toy Story. There's something that is not connecting on that level. And that certain something, that that development that makes you go, oh shit. You know, <laughs> like watching this movie... Um, you know, it, it just it just lacks. It, it's not in Raya, in my opinion. And the world that Raya lives in is a real world with a lot at stake. And though nothing could be more at stake, you know, speaking of the extinction of the human race, basically at the hand. Uh, well, I don't know if Droon have hands, but you know, um, at the at the, uh, uh, the actions of the Droon. I don't know the fucking word, but it doesn't matter. You know, it, the. This movie never felt heavy enough to earn that, you know. Uh, and it's not that I needed it to be sad or anything. It's not what I'm saying. It's just there's a weight that comes with this type of story. And Raya should have had it and it deserved to have it and it didn't. The entire film is built for one reason. It's message. A good lesson, but twisted in execution, I think. Um, but the film is about trust, and in order to find harmony, we must trust one another, and this is true to an extent, but this movie takes it to a further extent that could be problematic. Again, I don't think Raya is harmful to children or anything. Of course not. Of course not. I think it's a fine movie. It's good, uh, but I, I find the message, just it just feels strange. It feels forced, um, and it has like a lame factor as, you know, I don't know. It has a lame factor in the same way that the answer of love does in Interstellar. You know, it's like trust is to Raya as, you know, love is to Interstellar. They just, there's just something kind of inherently lame about how it's executed. I'm going back to that term, execution. But it just feels lame and unsatisfying. And that, that's how I felt about Raya and the Last Dragon, uh, especially the ending. 
Now, Sisu, who's played by Aquafina, is the last dragon, and she reminds me of Dory from Finding Nemo or Donkey from Shrek. She's a ridiculous character that is ultimately a fuck-up, so people ignore her suggestions, uh, but she sometimes has good ideas that they usually ignore but end up helping. So, uh, you know, that's Sisu, and this contributes to the rehashed emotions thing I mentioned. Uh, I ended up not caring about Sisu at all. Uh, she was honestly kind of annoying to me, and though I vastly prefer Sisu um, in her, how do I want to say this, other form, uh, I'll just say it that way, uh, for those who haven't seen it yet, uh, just to be vague, but, uh, you know, I, I prefer Sisu in the other form, um, but even then, it just felt kind of st like a stereotype or, or um, like a token character, like we want a character like this. Uh, but, you know, Raya was cool, the character of Raya, uh, but she didn't have the de the depth that would make me really care. Namari uh, of the Feng tribe, who is kind of the catalyst for all that goes wrong here, uh, is an interesting character. I actually think probably the most interesting of the group, uh, but she didn't have any depth to make me care. You know, no real development, again. So the these are three characters that uh, carry the film, and yet... They feel like rehashed stereotypes, and, and Raya has her motley crew of randos with her, including um, a baby that at one point is called Con Baby, which I, th <laughs> I thought Con Baby was actually funny. I laughed out loud, and I actually wrote in my notes, Con Baby, haha, <laughs> what the fuck? Um, I actually laughed when uh, someone called the baby con a con baby because it is a con artist and a baby, uh, which, of course, you know, it's a Disney movie. You're allowed to uh, have ridiculous things like that. But, uh, uh, you know, watching, you'll see what I mean. But I actually thought her little motley crew of rando characters, you know, I, I thought that was a nice touch. Um, I thought their kind of purpose in the film by the end is uh, really well done. And so that part of it I was into, and that kind of ties into that concept and that plot side of things. So uh, for as cool as the story is, though, like the concept, uh, for as grave and complicated as it feels, it seems really easy for Raya to do the things she has to do. And we hear all of this talk about how impossible her mission may be or or how the five five tribes hate each other. But you never really feel that. Again, back to weight. Weight is so important, everyone. Weight. Add weight to something. Give it some stakes. And not just like tell us something that's like stereotypical uh, that would have high stakes like the end of the world's coming. Or this guy's a bad guy and he's going to destroy the world. Like, make us feel it. That is your job as a film filmmaker. Make us feel it with the character. Raya should have been making us feel it, and I don't feel like we ever did. But coming back to wait, like in Cruella, like we just talked about, we get none. And it leaves, like, it basically just ends up leaving it as a shell of a movie. Now, I like Raya better than Cruella. I actually like, I'm positive on Raya overall. I know I'm critiquing it, maybe a little hard for some people, uh, but this is truly how I feel. And uh, both of these movies suffer for similar reasons, kind of in this weight department. Now, moving on though, the, the coolest part of the movie uh, are probably the Droon. Uh, they are 
essentially neutered by the lack of attention put into the confrontations, but uh, the Droon are these weird light balls surrounded by a cloak of black smoke. Um, when they cross someone's path, at, like literally cons- like when their smoke consumes someone, basically, whenever they cross through someone, uh, that someone turns into stone. And it's a pretty cool gimmick to have, uh, but they are ultimately underused. They're really, I know that they more represent something, um, but I think them representing something and being like a really kick-ass like enemy or whatever would have been a lot cooler. Uh, but they're still very cool, though. Uh, I really enjoyed all of the parts with them. Uh, I would love to just like play a video. I would play a Raya video game if I got to run around a world where the Droon just lived. That'd be wild. Uh, the dialogue and writing is pretty bad here, honestly. <laughs> um, nothing seems natural or flows particularly well. It ultimately doesn't amount to much because uh, it doesn't do its job and, and develop much of anything beyond the bare minimum of what we need to know about, um, you know, what we need to know for the narrative to make sense, basically. So we only get the bare minimum so that it makes sense. Um, but this results in dun da 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 no, wait. Uh, so all, all I know is Raya is trying to acquire these crystal pieces and Namari wants to stop her. It's lackluster. It's dull. Uh, nothing is there to keep you caring. Raya's father is incapacitated early on and her thoughts of him are pretty touching. Actually, there are a few moments where she thinks of her ba, as she says, and uh, I, I actually found those pretty effective. So this film is not void of all feeling. Don't get me wrong. There are some touching moments and and some, you know, there's some warmth in this. I, I feel like I'm being a little harsh on it, but I'll, I'll get to how I feel about it overall here in a moment. But this film has heart sometimes. Uh, but man, the ending, uh, I won't spoil it. Don't worry. But it is a letdown. I thought the ending to this movie was like the worst Disney ending I've seen in a long time. And I wasn't even a huge fan of Soul. That was like the beloved, like, it felt like an instant classic by people. They love this movie. And I felt like it was kind of uh, like all of the moments that weren't in the real world with the, you know, the uh, the pianist, like in the real world when they were in that uh, spirit world, if you will. Um, that whole thing uh, felt like a rehash of emotions like I've talked about. Now, I liked Soul. Don't get me wrong. I think I actually rated it about the same. Um but uh, yeah, this uh, this is just missing that something. And as I've said, Raya had every opportunity to succeed, and it just kind of falls flat by the end. That ending sucks. Now, the world seems really cool, but I wouldn't know because we don't really spend a ton of time in it or learn much about it other than, again, bare necessities. So it just is. Overall, I liked the movie for its gorgeous animation, cool concept. Uh, the concept really kept me going, and I didn't like dislike any of the characters. I just wanted more from them because I found some of them particularly interesting. Uh, so, like the concept went a long way, and the journey that ultimately leads to a disappointing finale, but the journey was worth it. I actually had a good time, and I enjoyed watching it with my daughter. Uh, this is a mid-tier Disney movie, easy. Um, it will never be like a bona fide classic in my opinion, but, uh, you know, eventually it's animation won't be as incredible. Time takes such things away from us. Um, but you know, if you're an adult that is not particularly, 
uh, you know, into kids' movies. I can see this as being a safe one to skip. But if you're into Disney movies or have children to watch it with, by all means, go for it. It is a fun time. I know I didn't give you much reason to believe it is, but it's because you kind of just have to experience the things that I just said were good. Gorgeous animation, cool concept. The journey is a fun one. The characters, you know, you can get along with. They're not bad. The writing's kind of bad, but the, the characters are good. You know, they're, they're, they're interesting enough. I gave Ryan the Last Dragon a three out of five. Uh, if you agree or disagree, please hit us up on social media. Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'll be right back to talk about a documentary by Todd Haynes called The Velvet Underground. Be right back. The Velvet Underground from this year uh, just came out uh, a couple weeks ago, October 15th, 2021, directed by Todd Haynes, of course, about The Velvet Underground, the band. Uh, it's streaming on Apple TV+. Plus. It is an Apple TV original, so you'd have to have that streaming service to watch it. Um, you might be able to rent it elsewhere, but I don't think you can. So the film explores the multiple threads that converge to bring together one of the most influential bands in rock and roll. The Velvet Underground was an influential band that arose from the music, art, and film avant-garde of the early 1960s New York City. Uh, although not a commercial success at the time, it had a significant impact uh, you know, on underground, experimental, and alternative music and the development of punk and new wave music. Its core members were Lou Reed, Sterling Morrison, John Cale, and Maureen Tucker. Artist Andy Warhol managed and promoted the band, convincing them to add German singer and model Nico to their lineup. Haynes's uh, film examines the cultural milieu of the band and its musical and cinematic influences. It tracks the band's history from formation to the breakup of its original lineup in the early 1970s, and interviews with surviving band members Kale and Tucker and musicians the band influenced are woven with archival music and film material. I won't uh, talk much about Velvet Underground documentary, not because I didn't like it, because I thought it was quite good, but because, um, you know, with most documentaries, you need to just see it and experience the content yourself. Uh, this film, if there ever was one, is a documentary you need to experience yourself because it is an interesting one. Now, Todd Haynes put together this doc in such a peculiar way. Largely using archival footage, the film is constantly jumping to a variety of aspect ratios, uh, some of which just because of the nature of the film. You know, some of them are, uh, you know, maybe a 16 millimeter, you know, four by three. Another one will be a little widescreen. And then he'll have what was clearly filmed in widescreen, but there will be like a fourth of the screen cut off and stuff. Or, or, or it'll be two widescreen uh, images that are side by side causing the... You know, they might fit the whole screen, but then whenever you put two side by side, there are like bars on top and bottom. It's a very, I don't know how to explain that. It, you just should see this. It's a very interesting visual experiment. And when you're talking about a band like the Velvet Underground, who were, of course, as we already said, involved in like the New York art scene uh, and Andy Warhol and stuff, it's actually, it seems that Todd Haynes did a really good job of putting this together in a way that was, you know, appropriate for the content. So, uh, you know, 
the film is constantly jumping to a variety of aspect ratios, like I said, and you know, uh, y- you'll see, uh, you know, new interview voiceovers, you know, that were recently um, recorded. Uh, while we watch, you know, black and white 16 millimeter footage of the band members just standing still. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, it's it's quite a trip. I actually ended up loving the aesthetic. At first, it was almost distracting. And not in a bad way, just like it really drew my attention. Um, but over time, I just really kind of fell in love with the visuals as I was learning more and more. Well, not so much learning, but kind of relearning a lot about the Velvet Underground. Um, you know, it made the documentary far more interesting because, you know, it is constantly doing things that are unusual, which got my attention. Uh, this documentary is essentially a basic overview of the rock and roll band, The Velvet Underground. Now, I'm a big fan of overview docs, to be honest. Uh, even if I know a ton about it, and even if it's just like elementary to my knowledge of something, for some reason, I just love these overviews. I actually just re- recently rewatched uh, Not Quite Hollywood, which follows like the exploitation, like Australian uh, movies, the Australian New Wave, basically in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it's really great. Uh, I just love watching it. It is just a simple overview of what was going on at the time. Uh, but I love it. There are some others. If you're interested in film history, for example, watch Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, or A Decade Under the Influence. Probably, you know, two documentaries that cover the most important point in American film history. If I had to guess, it's certainly my favorite era. Uh, but both documentaries are on the new Hollywood movement. Uh, but they are uh, a great comprehensive overview of the movement, especially both of them as companion pieces. Because though, as a Venn diagram would show, you know they f- they overlap a lot because they're covering the same era, but they kind of both focus on slightly different things. It's great, so uh, definitely go check those out. Uh, but like these sorts of documentaries, I digress. Uh, the Velvet Underground just leaves too much out. And, and, and this isn't like detrimental to the film per se. It's just only going to be as good as it can be. Um, and it, it's not the fault of Todd Haynes. It's the fault of the medium. You could easily do a documentary on each member of the Velvet Underground and another doc on, you know, uh, their influence on music history. That's already like five or six docs right there. So, um, you know, you could do a lot. But, you know, that would pretty much be a TV miniseries or something. And that's just not marketable. I, at least I doubt it is. Uh, though I, it would be cool for me. <laughs> you know? um, but anyways, the film the film falls victim to the classic documentary feature fault. You know, there just isn't enough time to tell the whole story. And unfortunately, in this situation, a lot of the whole story uh, is the most interesting part. You know, those those whole story moments that are missing. There's a lot of interesting shit in there. So. Uh, this is such a peculiar outing for Haynes, too. Haynes is the director that did uh, Safe, Far From Heaven, I'm Not There, and Carol, to name a few. And, you know, looking at uh, Velvet Goldmine and I'm Not There, uh, which is about Bob Dylan, I'm Not There is, um, you know, it, it's no surprise Haynes is a Velvet Underground fan. But, you know, this film does not feel like a Haynes movie to me. Uh, this is not a bad thing, really. I'm not saying that. It's just an observation. Unlike his other films, I just don't feel him in this, whereas in, in the other movies, I can. Um, but in sum, this is a really killer documentary about the Velvet Underground. If you like the band or don't really uh, you know, know anything about them, 
check this out for sure, because if, if you can learn from this documentary, and I learned a few things, don't get me wrong, but I knew quite a bit about the Velvet Underground already. But if you're someone who doesn't know that much or just, you know, doesn't really know them at all, check this out. It's super awesome. It's super interesting. Uh, if you know a lot about the band or Lou Reed specifically, you may think it's cool like me, um, but it may not blow your mind. Uh, either way, it's a good doc. I recommend it. I gave this film a three and a half out of five. If you agree or disagree, hit us up on social media, Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I will be right back to talk about the last film of this episode, and that movie is called Pig. Also came out this year. Uh, stay tuned. I'm ready to talk about Pig. It was written and directed by Michael uh, Sarnowski and the story by Vanessa Block and Michael Sarnowski. Uh, the cast, Nicolas Cage, Alex Wolf, and Adam Arkin. There are a few other people, but those are the three prominent characters for sure. Uh, release date was July 16th of this year, 2021. Uh, I don't know the budget, couldn't find it, but the box office was three and a half million. Remember... This came out during a pandemic, and it is a basically an independent film, so I didn't expect it to do great. It's not like a big 3,000 theater release movie. Uh, it'd get a lot more uh, praise whenever it hits streaming services, I'm sure. Um, but hey, uh, the film is about Robin Rob Feld, uh, who is a reclusive truffle forager, uh, like as in The Mushrooms. And uh, living in his cabin deep in the Oregon forests, he hunts for truffles with his helpful, uh, with or sorry, with the help of his prized truffle pig. He sells the truffles to Amir, a young and inexperienced supplier of luxury ingredients to high-end restaurants. And one night, Rob is assaulted by unidentified assailants who also steal his pig. He reaches out to Amir, who sometimes begrudgingly helps him look for the pig. And Rob has to return back to the city he left all those years ago. God, I liked Pig. I like this movie. This is my favorite movie, The Bunch, that I'm talking about today. But once you see it, I have a feeling you won't be surprised. Uh, my friend Austin Luger said this about Pig. This is beautiful and profound and rich. It plays like a southern gothic novel filled with introspection on the love you hold on to and the love you chose to abandon. And yes, every once in a while, you get a tiny hint of Nicolas Cage as Farmer John Wick, but it's all done through a sadder lens. And though I don't find the movie particularly profound or uh, rich to say, I love Austin's love for this movie. And I think the John Wick reference is relevant. Uh <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I thought this was going to be a reclusive extremist gets revenge on the culinary community of Portland, Oregon, but <laughs> which I kind of still want to see that movie. Uh, but it goes in a very different direction. I honestly wish it was John Wick, but Nicolas Cage in food uh, <laughs> and a pig. Um, uh, but it, it kind of gets away from that and probably the better for it. But I kind of would have liked the simplicity of that. Uh, I'll get to why in a moment. But Pig, you know, it takes its time. It breathes. This movie has, like, a vibe to it, man. Like, there's something to it, and I love that part of it. It lets Nick Cage, you know, have his Cage moments 
on occasion, but never quite so ridiculous as you would think. But they never feel out of place or forced. Cage is really good here, I think. He is. Uh, he looks the part for sure. <laughs> uh, my wife asked me during the movie, and she wasn't really watching it. She was playing Animal Crossing New Horizon. But she would like look over because she'd just be intrigued by what she was hearing. And eventually she goes, since when did Nick Cage look so old? And he definitely looks aged and worn here as Rob. And I think he looks better than he's ever looked in a movie. <laughs> I really love the way he looks here. Rob is a man of few words. His actions tell the story, always brooding about something, uh, only having one love at this point in his life, and that is his pet pig. And so, you know, he goes to every link to try to get it back. Uh, and at first, Amir, played by Alex Wolf from Hereditary fame, uh, you know, he kind of annoyed me at the beginning. His character and performance were just kind of off to me. But by the end of the film, I actually, you know, felt like he did exactly what he needed to do to be where he needed to be. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, to that level, you know, kudos to you, Alex. <laughs> you did good. You done good. Uh, you know, but Pig is like an anti-revenge movie that plays into our expectations of the genre of like the revenge movie genre, uh, you know, to basically to subvert them. And this is clear by the end uh, of the film. Uh, but if I'm honest, part of me wishes it would have just fulfilled the expectation. <laughs> you know, I, I, I recognize that uh, I'm a heretic for saying that probably, but uh, by the end of the movie, it left me wanting more. And at the very least, it would have been a fun bloodbath or, or something crazy at the end. But the end that we get it feels unrealistic, even within the level of realism the film constantly uh, consistently holds throughout. Because I think the, the, the realism that it's going for is consistent because it's not exact realism, uh, but it's like believable realism. And the end just didn't feel that way for me. It felt anticlimactic, and that's just never fun. Uh, yeah, also just kind of far too convenient and too underplayed. Um, I don't know. So the emotional resonance isn't going far at the end. You know, it, uh, it doesn't hit me like it should. Um, and that kind of bummed me out a bit. Uh, but the very last few minutes are great. And uh, they don't save the ending, but they're they're. I, I really like how it kind of leaves you. Uh, but the entire ending, as a whole, was just disappointing to me. And it sucks because I want it to be this great anti revenge movie, and I want it to subvert our expectations. I just want it to do so with a different ending because I really appreciate that anti revenge movie aspect of it. But man, I yeah, I just. It just disappointed me because I really liked the movie. So, uh, you know, I, I say all that to say that, uh, you know, uh, this is the only major criticism I have of the film is that ending. You know, the performances are good. Adam Arkin, son of the great Alan Arkin, plays Amir's dad, and he is awesome at being an asshole. Uh, the music is beautiful and plays into the tone of the film perfectly, never overstaying its welcome, uh, you know, or being overly manipulative. It, it simply enhances the vibe. Uh, the camera work is well done, thanks to Patrick Scola. Uh, I don't think Scola has done uh, a movie this big before, at least with this 
notable of a cast. So kudos to him for pulling his weight and making the film look gorgeous. It really does look beautiful. Of course, Portland has something to do with that beauty. But but yeah, Uh, you know, this is also Michael Sarnowski's directorial debut, folks. And he was able to capture a deeply unsatisfying movie in conventional terms that is rewarding in its authentic humanism. Uh, I'm I'm impressed with this as a directorial debut. I'm I'm interested in seeing what Sonoski does next. Um, I don't necessarily have expectations of it being great, but I want to see it for sure. Um, I'm interested in seeing what a kind of a sophomore effort will be. Uh, but there are certain things we've been conditioned to expect in movies like this, and when a movie's premise is that Nicolas Cage's pig gets stolen and he's going on a quest to retrieve it. A lot of the expectations one would expect, uh, you just said expectations and expect too much, but the expectations one might have for a revenge movie would definitely be triggered by that synopsis. But this zigs when you think it is zag, and not in the ways you might think, you know, but it does nonetheless. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that the movie is unpredictable, you know, I, I'm sure that any kind of uh, seasoned moviegoer will be in the ballpark of figuring this movie out. It's not hard. It's not like some super... It's just unexpected, to go back to the uh, term expect. <laughs> um, looking at expectations, it's just, you know, it's less unpredictable and kind of some unexpected things. So, um, but that that's, that's not necessarily... Uh, what's even cool about it, you know, like figuring it out or anything. That's not the cool thing. Uh, Pig is cool because for as ridiculous as Nick Cage can be in other movies, he is more human in this movie than any film I've seen him in in years. I mean, probably back to like The Weatherman or something. I don't even, and and even then he's probably more so here. Um, I mean, you know, I love, I think Mandy's the best film he's done probably you know, this century, okay, <laughs> like like in the from 2000 on or whatever, maybe even all the way back to his early stuff. Um, uh, I think Mandy's really, really good, but he's not particularly human in Mandy. He just fulfills the role so well, and that movie just rules. But uh, Pig is a different side of Cage, and I'm totally, totally here for it. I really love it. So, you know, this film is interesting and in how or interested rather in how we uh, would we deal with loss. And I also found this to be really interesting. Um, probably one of the more interesting aspects of the movie, whether, uh, you know, it be a pignapped pet or a mother lost to disease and time, or, uh, you know, just a lost lover, you know, loss is everywhere in pig. And, and I found this to be the most profound aspect going back to people using that term And I don't think the film is particularly profound overall, but looking at loss is interesting. You know, I I lost my mom in in 2018. And I remember, you know, not responding the way I expected to. You know, I I walked in whenever my mom had just died. Uh, The nurses were still kind of frantically, like, moving around her bed. And I came in, and they all looked like they were kids opening their presents in the middle of the night without their parents knowing. And as soon as the lights flicked on, they like all turned back and like looked at me, freaked out. Um, terrible, terrible example that I just gave for the context of this. But still, uh, these nurses just like looked back at me, like, "Oh my god!" And I told them who I was, and they were like, 
I'm so sorry. And I'm like, for what? And they're like, she's gone. And I just didn't realize. And I just remember that feeling of loss and the grief scripts that we have. Grief scripts being what people expect us, how they expect us to behave and what they expect us to go through uh, when we are dealing with grief. And I did not follow those. I had very different feelings than people expected me to have. And when my grandma died last year of COVID, uh, same exact thing happened. I felt differently than I expected to. I didn't follow these grief scripts. I was just true to my feelings. And then recently, uh, my wife and I lost our cat, Byron. We had to put him to sleep, unfortunately. We did everything we could. We put a lot of money into him. We tried to figure it out, and he was just really, really sick. And I remember sitting in there. I was by myself with him. I left work, and uh, I held him while he got the shots to be put to sleep. And uh, he was just like a little angel. And it was, again, I actually didn't expect to get super emotional because I knew it was the best thing for him. And I just kind of felt like uh, resolution there. But as soon as I left, I just remember tearing up a lot and just feeling an overwhelming amount of emotions. My point in bringing these three kind of bummer stories up is, is like loss can manifest in so many different ways and in so many unexpected ways. And so even though I'm sitting here kind of giving this movie's ending shit because I just didn't buy it, to go back to that term, I didn't buy it. No, it did not, uh, you know, uh, earn my suspension of disbelief. So, uh, no, I did not buy it. But when you look at how loss works, it's kind of like, am I holding this film to a certain established grief script. Like, I can't really tell if if it's really that the movie is, or the ending is good or bad. Maybe it just didn't connect with me. Um, and so I'm still kind of like processing that, I guess, because I think loss is just a really interesting thing to tackle. And I think the movie does a pretty decent job at it. You know, we'll see how I feel on like a second viewing sometime. But uh, yeah, so loss loss is a big part of it. Pig is a fun movie to check out. If you're a fan of Nick Cage, this is approximately approximately 100 billion times better than Willy's Wonderland that came out earlier this year. A movie I loathe. A movie I talked to Joe about briefly on one of our episodes and yelled about because I was so passionately against it. Um, man, I didn't like that movie. But you know, uh, see this Cage movie. This is. Uh, far better than the other effort. And I have yet to see Prisoners of the Ghostland. I believe that's the name. Um, I will be seeing that here shortly. I'll cover it on the show, I'm sure. And I'll kind of size up the three uh, Nick Cage movies from this year just to see how those go. But uh, yeah, that'll be soon. I digress. Uh, you know, it is, it is, uh, Pig is one of the more memorable titles of the year so far for me. Um, you know, though it won't end up on my top 10, I guarantee, uh, it's just a movie that I'm glad to have experienced and I hope you see it too. Again, it was my favorite film, uh, of the four that I covered today and I gave Pig a three and a half out of five, which I know is the same number as the Velvet Underground, but you know, I don't think most people probably understand how I rate things. Uh, but I'll tell you this, it's just on the line. A second viewing is really going to give me... I think a clearer perspective, and I'll, hopefully I'll be able to watch that again sometime soon, especially after the the uh, 
2021 cram that I'm in the middle of. Uh, but I gave it a three and a half out of five, very close to a four out of five. We'll see where I land after a second viewing. If you agree or disagree with uh, my feelings on Pig, please hit me up on social media at Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also, don't forget, uh, I'm on there. You can go to Twitter and Instagram, search for Austin Glidden, I'll pop up. And on Letterboxd, you can see and follow along with all the things that I watch. Um, I'll be back in just a moment to kind of send you guys off, but that is the end of this, uh, of this episode, pretty much. It's kind of a shorter one, but it's still over an hour. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, I'll come back for an outro here in just a second. So stay tuned. All right. That's our episode for today, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for uh, just everything. I don't know. You know, sometimes it's kind of hard to get through uh, recording these, depending on what's going on in life. You're really busy, or you know, you just don't. You just have so much going on. You don't feel like you can get through enough movies to make it worth it. And you know what? I pounded out some 2021 movies just for this episode. You know, I, again, I had my daughter last weekend, and so we watched Cruella and Raya and the Last Dragon. And then, you know, just on my own, I really wanted to see The Velvet Underground. So I started watching that while my wife was playing Animal Crossing. And I was like, fuck it, I'll watch this documentary. And then, uh, yeah, and then Pig is just one that was at the top of my list to see. I was really excited about it. And uh, my buddy Jake Bottolieri was like, dude, I just saw Pig. You should check it out. Uh, not that he loved it a lot, you know, but he just was like, I think you should just see this movie. So I don't know. I'm going to keep doing this, though. I'm going to keep watching some 2021 stuff. I'll be covering it. Even if I have a guest, you know, I'll have some uh, some solo uh, dis- some solo talk. I'll call it that. Uh, I hesitate in calling them reviews because it is kind of just me discursively talking about them. But the point is, I'm really excited about it. But until then, I love all of you. Thank you so much. Good night. Good luck. And take it easy. <laughs>